Hello, friends, and all you non-Quakers out there as well. Welcome again to another episode of the Potluck Podcast, where we discuss SBC life and Southern culture. Uh, I am leading as host this evening. I am Alan Murray, the oldest person in the podcast, even though Matt Hensley is older than me by six years. Uh, My hair is much grayer and much more of it at the moment, uh, as he is shorn atop his head. Matt, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. I like the little shorn look. I've I've been rocking it here lately, shaving it about every other day. A little more aerodynamic for my uh, one-mile runs every morning. Uh, but yeah, we're doing well in the mountains. Supposed to be getting some rain here in the next couple of days, which we always need that. I can't quite remember how similar our areas are, but here we really struggle with wildfires. And so we desperately need snow. We did get some snow, which was good. That saturates the ground pretty good, soaks it in. Uh, but if we get some rain, usually we don't have to worry about wildfires. So that's a blessing. So if that comes, great. Uh, if not, we will watch the ground get drier and drier and hope that uh, nobody uh, forgets to put out their campfires. Remember old Smokey the Bear or whatever that remember only you can prevent forest fires. Yeah, don't don't start any wildfires from the pulpit. But I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, we, we typically don't have to deal with terribly too many wildfires, although it is a possibility here in eastern North Carolina. Uh, as hard as that is, we believe as much rain as we've had, uh, we do get fires from time to time. But that does bring us to our first ministerial topic that we're talking about tonight, and that is just disagreements. Uh, doing theological triage, as Al Mohler has put it, how you disagree with people in ministry. Um, obviously you and I, we don't agree on everything. Uh, you, you have deep theological roots on the supremacy of Whataburger. Um, and I have deep theological, you know, groundings on the supremacy of Bojangles. And so obviously we disagree on things and anyone who knows this knows that obviously we're not friends, but in, in ministry, you know, you're going to have disagreements with people. You're going to have disagreements with people in your church. I hope that you do. Um, I hope that your people trust you and that they believe you and they they believe the things that you believe, but there are going to be different nuances that you have where you're you're scarcely going to find anybody that you agree with 100% of the time on 100% of the things. So how how do you deal with that Uh, on a church level? And we'll we'll start there and then move out. How do we deal with that uh, in a ministerial setting with cooperating with other Baptists and, and maybe even ecumenically? How we can work together with somebody who's somewhat like-minded, but differs on, say, the ecclesiology or baptism. Yeah, so on the church level, it it really kind of circles around the the Baptist faith and message, and, and when it comes to, you know, Sunday school material and, and that kind of thing, we use Lifeway, which is going to fall under uh, the the Baptist faith and message, and because I feel like with, within the BF&M, there, there is enough width for just about all people that would identify as Baptist to be able to find their bearings. And so we can have some minor disagreements, but it really encapsulates the essentials very well, in my opinion, especially with, you know, 2000 uh, Faith and Message, where you have also the addition of the family. And, uh, you know, it highlights religious liberty. It highlights, you know, how I, I like I believe the wording is something like in his own time and in his own way. But I like that idea of in his own time and in his own way. Like it it allows you as an on-mill or post-mill or pre-mill or whatever we are uh, to, to still find unity within the BF&M. And so in our church, 
any anybody that would want to join uh, would not have to necessarily agree with every dot and tittle of the BFNM uh, beyond what would be you know very essential matters. Uh, but in order to teach, they would have to affirm uh, the Baptist faith and message. So within the church, that's where we land. Is we just really find that a good. Uh, would you almost call them like rails for the church? It really serves as a good uh, rails on either side uh, to keep us kind of within that uh, framework. But that keeps us kind of within the parameters of what we are as Southern Baptists. What about you guys? In a very similar fashion, uh, I had somebody at church one time ask me, you know, why don't you ever teach the opposing views on on a particular issue that was a matter of eternal security? Um and I came back and said, you know, I'll occasionally talk about, you know, different views that other people have, uh, but I am held to the doctrinal standards of our church, which is adherence to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Um, and for, for those of you that are listening that are Southern Baptist, you, you have to have some flexibility to be a Southern Baptist. Uh, you know, we are often called a big tent or a big umbrella convention because we do allow some flexibility on those secondary, uh, possibly and definitely tertiary issues within the convention, to use Al Mohler's language and theological triage that, you know, the, the first tier issues are those things that are essential to be a good Christian. You know, the, um, the triune nature of God, uh, the eternal nature of the Son, um, the, the virgin birth, uh, forgiveness of sins, the eternal nature of both heaven and hell, those kinds of things that you would see in the Apostles and Nicene Creed. And then those secondary issues uh, that may divide us from uh, another denomination that Presbyterians have a different ecclesiology and they have a uh, different view of baptism and a different view of the covenants. And you even get a different view of the covenants within Southern Baptist life as well, but they're still Christians, they're still brothers, and then there's those tertiary issues, things like eschatology that you mentioned before, and so I, I try to ultimately teach the Bible, uh, but of course everybody who teaches the Bible is going to say I'm teaching the Bible, uh, but like you said, the confessional standard that we have as Southern Baptist in our church and yours as well in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, it really does act like rails. Uh, and historically, we've seen that in so many other denominations and movements. And our own movement as Baptists, uh, the earliest Baptist uh, wrote the first London Confession to show, hey, uh, we have a lot in common with you congregationalists and a lot in common uh, with you as Presbyterians that were at the Westminster Assembly. Uh, but there's some things that make us very different. Uh, we do have some things in common with the Anabaptists, but in the preface to the First London Confession, they say uh, the people who are commonly mistakenly known as Anabaptists. Uh, yeah, we, we baptize believers, but we're not like the, the Anabaptists. And so having those, those doctrinal standards, teaching those really do help. Um, being at a place where we are in Southern Baptist life, where Lifeway curriculum is good again, this may be offensive to some, and I hope I'm not offending terribly too many, but when I began uh, pastoral ministry nine years ago almost now, uh, the Lifeway curriculum that I looked at stunk. It was not good, uh, and we've come a long way in, in Bible studies for life. Um, Explore the Bible, both of those are, are great. Uh, the Gospel Project, all of that helps a lot, and so uh, keeping the Bible central, but also saying here's what we've agreed to as a church. Here's our doctrinal standard. For me to deviate beyond that or anybody teaching beyond that, 
uh, is is going to be an issue. But like you said, it's not necessary that someone, uh, you know, affirm every jot and tittle of the Baptist faith and message to be a member of the church. And, and I would argue that probably majority of our churches don't practice the Baptist faith and message as it concerns ordinances. It teaches yeah. closed communion. Uh-huh. And very few churches that I know do that or even have the discussion. Uh, and so it's very helpful. Uh, beyond the local church, uh, we, of course, have uh, interactions with other pastors who may be Southern Baptist or other pastors who are not Southern Baptist. I know I'm in a pastor's cohort right now with uh, most of the guys are Southern Baptist. One of them is non-denominational, uh, but Baptistic thinking. There's there's some major theological disagreement uh, in that room, but we're still able to cooperate together on an associational level. So how do you how do you interact? What do you uh, walk up to a Presbyterian brother and say you paid a Baptist scum? I am not doing anything with you. Uh, or you know, in Southern Baptist circles, there's been tension over so many issues. Um, uh, I almost miss the Calvinism arguments because it seems like we've we've got bigger issues in the room right now that we're dealing with. Yeah. How do you, how do you get along with people that don't dot the I's and cross the T's the way that you do in ministry? Yeah. So one one of my rules is is that I'll I'll preach anywhere. If there's an offer to preach, I will preach the gospel wherever that is. If it's on a street corner or at some multi-faith gathering or something, I will gladly preach the the gospel wherever that invitation is. As far as bringing the the church along with it, you know, my, my church and encouraging participation, then it begins to narrow what we're going to participate in. And so I I have, you know, with Facebook and Twitter and so forth, friends that are Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, all across the, you know, the denominational landscape, uh, and also have friends that are atheists and, and homosexuals and everything else. Like, you know, there's, I have dear friends that are in every camp imaginable, and that helps me to fine-tune what I know and I believe because I, I am sharpened when I hear an argument that I disagree with. Um, that was one thing I liked about uh, my classes with uh Dr. Bingham at uh, Southwestern in systematic theology. What he taught us to do was we need to be able to study blank, whatever it is, you know, dispensationalism or Arminianism or Presbyterian, all that, so that we can defend their position from Scripture in a way that they would say, yes, that's what I believe. And so I was really helped by that because when we taught it, you know, and, and walked our way through it, we could see, well, this is why I disagree with them, but at least I know how they got to where they got, you know, how they landed where they landed. So I will preach anywhere. I will involve our church only in a much smaller scope of things that we would line, uh, you know, doctrinally and so forth. As far as some pastor fe- fellowships, uh, that's going to go down to, you know, those first tier uh, beliefs that we would have that ultimately unite us as Christians or not, you know, so I wouldn't be in a pastor fellowship uh, that might also have Mormons or Jehovah Witness or, you know, another cult or something like that. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but as far as linking arms and doing some benevolence work with, you know, my Lutheran brothers or, you know, the female Methodist pastor up the road from us, uh, I'll do that all day long in terms of meeting the needs of our community. Uh, because while we disagree on some major things, which is why we're in the particular churches we're in, uh, we still unite under the banner of Christ. And uh, so, and we can have some friendly 
arguments about it. And we do. And they're encouraged by it. And I'm encouraged by it and helped by it. And we probably solidify what we believe a little more. Uh, and so I'm grateful for it. What about you guys? Well, I, I will not preach just anywhere. Uh, and I'm not saying that you would preach just anywhere. Um, I was invited one time to preach at a oneness church uh, to a youth group um, and originally accepted the invitation until I realized they were oneness. Um, you know, they denied the Trinity. And so this was clearly a, a heretical group. Um, and I didn't want to give any kind of uh, semblance or credence to show that I was affirming them as a, a Christian group in my being there. Um, I ended up having some very sharp disagreements and discussions uh, with the person who invited me afterwards, and it kind of hindered uh, any relationship that we had there. But um, that being said, you know, for, for us at Centerville, uh, every Thanksgiving, with the exception of this past year because of COVID, uh, the United Methodist Church here in Kelly and us, we rotate back and forth for Thanksgiving service. We host it, their pastor preaches, and we serve a meal the next year. I'll preach, they host and serve a meal. Uh, and I think like they do the main part, we bring the desserts. Uh, Baptists are much better cooks than the Methodists, um, and we have better doctrine. But uh, and I've told my deacons, I said, I love it, I enjoy it, but if their pastor gets called somewhere else and they get a woman pastor, um, we're going to have to end it. Uh, not that we can't do ministry with them or work with them, but it wouldn't be fair, in my opinion, for me to go and preach in her pulpit, knowing that I can't in good conscience let her in mine. Yeah. Um, and so that that's a line that I've, I've not had to to draw yet, uh, because they're, they're pastor there, uh, Pastor Ernie is a great guy, and I don't know how long he'll be there. I hope he's there for a long time. Uh, but if, if their next pastor was a female, um, I just couldn't in good conscience let a woman in my pulpit. And I'm not saying that you, you're saying that you would do that as well. No, absolutely uh, not. But, um, you know, there are some some issues where I have to draw the line. At the same time, um, while I, I don't think that the Bible uh, prescribes or allows uh, women to serve in the role of an elder or a pastor or uh, even in the preaching ministry uh, to a, a mixed congregation, um, I have a dear brother who is in another denomination there. Uh, he's a pastor of a Baptist church, but it's... Um, uh, not a Southern Baptist church, and his wife is a pastor um, of another church. And I, I, I love this dear brother. I prayed for him. I called him today to let him know, hey, I'm. you just popped up on my mind. I'm praying for you today. And I prayed for him and prayed for his wife and prayed for both their ministries today. Um, theologically, you know, I've got issues with uh, women serving in ministry uh, in that kind of capacity, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to pray for those people um, and, and befriend those people and do ministry together. Our churches um, have done a lot together um, in the, the past couple of years. Uh, we've shared meals together in both of our buildings. We've worshiped together in one another's buildings. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're a missionary Baptist church. I'm not sure what their allegiance is. Maybe the National Baptist Convention, they're predominantly African-American congregation. And, and we get along great. Uh, we're, we're brothers. We know that we've got some theological differences, but we've never let those get in between us. Um, the, just the work of the gospel and seeing the gospel um, shared throughout Kelly has been our, our common uniting thing, uniting under the banner of Christ, like you said before. Um, and so there, there's some levels of, of uh, cooperation and fellowship that you can have while there's some lines I draw out and giving authority to people that would teach things clearly contrary to what my church would hold uh, and myself as well. Yeah. And I, I think we, 
wholeheartedly agree on that. And, and for me, and I, I completely understand not wanting to preach in certain places as well. Uh, just, just for me, you know, I can make that clear with, with my people and, and uh, even, you know, publicly and so forth. Uh, I just, for, for me, the opportunity to preach the gospel, particularly in a place where I would say they need to hear it. Like I, th I think back to, you know, Matt Chandler's experience with that, I believe, I don't know what the conference was. I think it was orange or something like that. Uh, like I'll, I'll take any opportunity uh, to, to declare the good news. And, uh, and I've, I've gone back and forth. There's been times where I wouldn't and, uh, and I, I totally get it. And you also will preach out in open air. Uh, I can't remember what the festival was or whatever that you used to do. Uh, but you've talked about that before. Uh, why don't you just share with the people listening about that ministry that you do? Yes. Yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of open air preaching. Uh, I kind of started it when I was serving as a missionary um, and I would uh, preach these kind of short sermons, open air uh, at the corner of Kay and Atlantic at Curie Beach. Uh, immediately to my left every night was the Atlantic Ocean and I would share the gospel there. Uh, when I was serving in Western North Carolina, uh, I just really felt compelled, I think, by the Holy Spirit to go and uh, do some emphatic Bible reading and preaching on the courthouse steps during the White Squirrel Festival in downtown Brevard. The first time I got there, there were some people already there, uh, and they were a group that was about as close to Westboro Baptist Church as you can get uh, in their actions, not necessarily doctrinally, because Westboro Baptist Church, I don't think they're a church or a Baptist, but they're hyper-Calvinist, and this group was definitely not hyper-Calvinist or anything remotely close to Calvinistic theology. So I just got up beside him and just started reading my Bible uh, emphatically. And, and my wife, uh, Hope, was passing out tracts and engaging in conversation with people. Um, and they came over and told me I was sending people to hell and all this, that, and the other. Um, anyway, and, and it ended up being a great witness because people were able to see the difference. Uh, somebody trying to share the truth out of love and somebody, you know, calling people names and that kind of thing. So the next year, um, I got there way early. <laughs> And I got the courthouse steps before them. And so they, they chose the corner across from me uh, where they didn't have an elevated platform. So, yeah, I, I preach the gospel in open air. Uh, and the, the goal in that is not necessarily just to have an audience, but to, to bring people with you or to be able to pause and have conversations with people. Uh, one of those times there was a guy who came up uh, who stopped and wanted to talk to me. There was a lady there. She was from a Presbyterian church. She was praying for me. She, she just loved what I was doing. She was praying the whole time. This guy came down and, and asked some questions. And the first question, he was like, why don't you use the proper name of God? And I was like, okay, this guy is either Jehovah's Witness or in some kind of other cult. And uh, we ended up having a discussion. Turned out he was a Jehovah's Witness and just hammered down the, the truths of the gospel. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, I always want to speak with compassion towards them. Um, I've invited them into my home and have shared the gospel with them, had them come back time and time again having good conversations. Uh, but I could tell that this guy was uh, not receptive to truth. He was just there to distract me and to take up my time and keep me from doing what I needed to do. Uh, and I got down to the end of the conversation. And I said, the fundamental truth here, you and I are trusting for justification. Um, you are trusting in your works. And I am telling you that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the personal work of Jesus alone. Uh, and that the gospel is in Jesus Christ, and you're following a gospel of Charles Russell, uh, and it is going to lead you to hell if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Uh, and that lady 
uh, at one point before that said, you're just trying to distract him. You're just being used by the devil. He's trying to share the good news and you're just trying to keep him from, from doing what he needs to do. And so there was a very ecumenical moment where a lady who was an evangelical Presbyterian was praying for this Baptist pastor she didn't know, uh, while a uh, Jehovah's Witness uh, came up and was um, trying to convince me that I was teaching falsehood. <laughs> and so those that don't know, uh, this this idea of theological triage uh, was really started by Moeller, uh, or at least became popular with Moeller in an article from 2005. And uh, there's a more recent book back in 2020 uh, by the Ortlands called Finding the Right Hills to Die on, The Case for Theological Triage. And uh, as we wind down this part of the discussion, the, the idea of the triage here is really that first you have doctrines uh, based on their importance. Some hills are worth dying on after all, others are not. Uh, and so building on that idea, the, the first order doctrines that you have that are essential to the gospel, you know, the virgin birth, the different things that we profess that ultimately make us a Christian in the first place. And then you have like the second tier, which would be urgent uh, for the practice of the local church, what ultimately makes us Mayhill Baptist Church? What makes you Centerville Baptist? What makes us a Southern Baptist versus this person a Methodist or a Presbyterian? And, and then you have a third tier that are important in Christian theology, but not enough really to justify some separation among the Christians. And so we might have some people in our churches that maybe vote a little differently than us or, or believe this part of the end times or eschatology or, or something along those lines. Uh, but it's not enough to, to be in a different denomination. And then Ortland actually adds a fourth tier, which is unimportant to our gospel witness in ministry collaboration. But that's the idea of the triage. What ultimately makes us a Christian first and foremost? What then makes us a Southern Baptist or this person a Methodist or a Presbyterian? And then some wiggle room within that, what maybe I am Amel or my brother here in our church is pre-mill or you know, along those lines that are not as important. We wouldn't separate over it. We certainly wouldn't break fellowship over it. And so that's the idea of the theological triage. We've talked about who we would ultimately serve with, uh, what we believe within our churches in kind of the narrowing as we get closer to who we are as Centerville Baptist or Mayhill Baptist, and certainly Jared with Plymouth Park. Uh, but now we're going to transition a little bit to a, another topic. One that I was most surprised when I ended up in Arkansas and discovered Texas Roadhouse was not only in Texas. So our topic today is Texas Roadhouse. And first off, is there anything better on the planet than those roles? Is that a rhetorical question or do you want my answer? I do want an answer. There are lots of things better than those oh, roles come in Texas on. Roadhouse. They're, they're, they're good. They're, they're not that great, but they are good. Uh, the biscuits at Red Lobster are better. But on Facebook, there was this meme, uh, who has the better bread, Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Outback, or Texas Roadhouse? And the overwhelming answer was Texas Roadhouse. And my people at church love Texas Roadhouse, like anniversaries, birthdays, going out to eat, like Days ending in Y is a good reason to go to Texas Roadhouse. And so I posed the question, how many of you in rural communities have found that your people have a slight obsession with Texas Roadhouse? And what I learned is that lots of people from the country and people in cities just 
absolutely love Texas Roadhouse. Um, I like throwing the peanuts on the ground. Um, yeah. I enjoy that. I enjoy the peanuts. I, I love peanuts. Um, really big here in southeastern North Carolina. Eastern North Carolina in general, peanuts are big. So kudos to the peanuts. I believe they even serve uh, Eastern North Carolina peanuts at the place that uh, isn't in Wilmington. But um, I do not get the tremendous love, dedication, and almost cult-like worship of Texas Roadhouse. But you're from Texas, and you think it's the greatest thing since sliced yeast rolls and cinnamon honey butter. It, so I do love it. It's, uh, it's not really our go-to place for a anniversary. Uh, it is kind of a go-to place that we'll do for a birthday because uh, I like the uh, the girls being able to get on the saddle and, and them uh, singing happy birthday, that kind of deal. And uh, so we enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, my favorite thing at Texas Roadhouse is the chili. As far as chili that's out there mass produced or whatever at a restaurant, I've never had any that's as good as a Texas Roadhouse chili. And then Kyle, on the other hand, over at Not Another Baptist Podcast, gives me a hard time because we will go occasionally to Texas Roadhouse when we're traveling. And it, I think, is considered a steakhouse. I don't think I've ever gotten a steak at Texas Roadhouse because I don't think there is a fried chicken tender plate at at least a restaurant that I prefer over Texas Roadhouse. I love the batter. I love dipping it in their buffalo sauce, their, you know, their barbecue sauce. Uh, I mean, any any sauce really that they have, I enjoy. I haven't tried dipping it in the cinnamon butter. I don't think I will, uh, but I love it. And uh, that is our go-to place for a birthday party. Uh, but now we live about two and a half hours away from one. When we go to El Paso, that's always the deal. Is it? Uh, is this our chance to go to Chick-fil-A? Is this our chance to go to Whataburger? Is this our chance to go to Golden Corral? Is this our chance to go to Texas Roadhouse or one of the thousand other restaurants that they have that we've never tried? And so I haven't really gotten to experience that because it usually ends up being one of those four. Uh, but yeah, we do love it. Um, and uh, certainly enjoyed it back when it was in our own hometown and getting to go there a little more often. Uh, I didn't like it as much and I don't like it enough to wait over an hour to get a table. But if I can get in, I'll, I'll eat that all day long. And I do love the, uh, the rolls. I also have a thing about the rolls. Obviously, you know that I love them. But one is when I first get there, I eat the rolls with the A1 sauce. And I pour a little A1 sauce on a saucer and start dipping it in there. And I eat that. And then at the end of the dinner, because we're cheap and on a pastor budget and can't get dessert, I will dip the rolls in the cinnamon butter. And that's basically my dessert. So hopefully that didn't just completely and totally revolt you, but uh, that's, that's my thing. Well, I doubt you can see my face because I'm recording outside of my porch and it's dark, uh, but I just made all sorts of faces and I'm pretty sure that this might be the end of the podcast because <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to break on theological lines uh, because you dip uh, your rolls in A1 sauce. Um, 
man, that sounds terrible. Uh, the, <laughs> so the only time that I that I, I use A1 is if a steak is really, really, really bad. Yeah. Um, I prefer like nothing on my steak or like yeah. creamy horseradish would be my my dipping. So maybe I know why you like Texas Roadhouse, um, which is definitely a steakhouse. Like if you can pick out your own steak in the clear case as you come in, it's definitely a steakhouse. Um, I've just had too many not great experiences there with steak, which I would think should be good because it's a steakhouse. Yeah. Uh, but I've, I've never had the chili there. Um, I've learned that they cook their potatoes, the sweet potatoes and the baked potatoes in bacon grease. Um, and so now I know why I like their baked potatoes and why I think they're probably better than the steaks most times. Um, yeah, maybe I'll have to just try the chicken tenders next time because, uh, but I, you know, I tell you when I get chicken tenders at a restaurant is when my kids have like part of one left over and we're getting ready to go and it's not enough to put in a box. Um, I just don't order chicken tenders out, especially if I'm at a steakhouse. Um, I, I just expect the, the specialty of the house to be a good thing, but it's good. Like, I like it. Like, if people give us gift cards to Texas Roadhouse, which they've done numerous times, I'm always thankful and I'll go. Uh, but it, it's it's definitely not my not my top pick. I, I'm a, a Longhorn person as far as corporate steakhouses go. Yeah. Well, I love you. And if this does end the podcast, uh, I enjoyed it, even though you're still not my friend. But uh, now we know why. <laughs> it's the A1 in the buttered roll. <laughs> So why don't you send us out? Friends, uh, we hope that you have come to the potluck and that you have had your full and had your fill. And we hope that you don't put A1 on your yeast rolls at Texas Roadhouse. And you'll join us again next time at the Potluck Podcast. Same Baptist time, same Baptist hour. Stay Baptist, my friends. Bye.